Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle Friends. Today, uh, we will be talking to Steven Donziger. This is an exclusive interview. He just got out of prison. Um, he, of course, was on house arrest for about 800 days, all over a mucked-up charge of he didn't turn over his cell phone and his laptop to Chevron. And the reason why Chevron was going after him, the reason why the court system was going after him, is because he beat Chevron in a case in Ecuador where they had to pay $9.5 billion in damages. Um, to the people of Ecuador for poisoning their water and destroying the environment over there. So they really threw the book at him. Um, he was sentenced to six months in prison, which is the most anybody's ever gotten for this misdemeanor crime. No one has spent a day in prison Correct. for this misdemeanor That's right. crime. Um, so he was there for, I don't know how long he was there for, maybe a month, something like that. 45 days, I believe. 45 I days, thought. and then uh, he was released. So we're going to figure out how and why he was released, what his experience was like inside, um, what he's going to do from here. There's just a whole bunch of stuff to get into with him, and we're honored that we're one of the first that he's he spoke to Marianne Williamson, I think, before, but we're one of the first that he's speaking to. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, very excited to get to talk to him. Uh, I know you guys were worried about him. We were worried about him and how it was going in there. So um, just to, to see him out, to see him home, it's a long way from freedom, but it is way better than being locked in a federal prison. So can't wait to catch up with Steven. And, of course, I have to mention, it did happen the day after we did our live stream with me and Brianna and Marianne and Katie. So I'm I'm going to claim that. going to claim that. you going to take credit for it? You guys <laughs> freed Donzinger yourselves? That's so. right. That's right. Sweet. That's <laughs> <great>. <laughs> um, but we did have a couple of other stories we wanted to get to first. So you on your show and me on my show, we track oftentimes the uh, apparent and obvious corruption of members of Congress trading a variety of stocks. There's actually a big report out right now done by Insider Business Insider, whatever they want to be called now, looking at every member of Congress and their staff, and that's important too, and the stock trades they're making, the way that they're potentially either profiting off of their insider knowledge on different committees that they sit on or might be influenced in the decisions that they're making because of their financial positioning. As a result of that massive investigation, which I recommend to all of you, or you could just watch my segment on it on Breaking Points. Or mine. Or Kyle's on Secular Talk. And you're already on Secular Talk now, so pick Secular Talk. <laughs> anyway, watch both of them. Uh, as a result of that significant investigation, Speaker Pelosi actually got asked a question about just whether or not members of Congress and their spouses should be day trading while they're sitting in these positions of power. Let's take a listen to her response. Um, Madam Speaker, uh, Insider just completed a five-month investigation finding that 49 members of Congress and 182 senior congressional staffers have violated the Stock Act, um, the Insider Trading Law. I'm wondering if you have any reaction to that. And secondly, should members of Congress and their spouses be banned from trading individual stocks while serving in Congress? No, I don't know to the second one. Um, any, uh, we have a responsibility to report in the stock, uh, on the stock, but I don't, I'm not familiar with that five-month review, but if uh, people aren't reporting, they should be. Because this is a free market and people, we are a free market economy, they should be able to participate in that. People should be able to participate in the free market economy, Kyle. Ladies and gentlemen, the Democratic Party. And that's actually not totally fair because all the Republicans do it too. 
percent. Yeah. So it's not just the Democrats. It's Washington, D.C. right in front of our face. Yeah. But these are the ones who are supposed to be, you know, against money and politics and they're whatever. They're not any of that, which <laughs> very clearly. Um, you know what the oldest trick in the book is, is you take flowery sounding concepts and you put them over the most egregious possible things. Good example is the Patriot Act. You're against the Patriot Act? What are you, unpatriotic? What do you hate America? Well, what's in the Patriot Act? Well, the NSA spies on everybody and collects everybody's metadata. And uh, we have no more Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure, and the Constitution is shredded. Yeah. That's Be the a patriot, patriot and Act. support it. Right. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so this is exactly what Nancy Pelosi is doing here. She's deploying that tactic. Oh, the totally rank and brazen corruption that 182 members of Congress and their staffers were just caught in by Business Insider red-handed violating the 2012 Stock Act. Well, it's just, it's a free market. It's a free market. So let me get this straight. Was it a free market when Tom Price, the former head of Health and Human Services under Trump, when he directly invested in a medical device company and then pushed legislation that increased the stock price of the medical device company he just invested in? Is that a free market or is that insider trading and corruption? What would you consider that? What would you consider it when Kelly Leffler, Dianne Feinstein, and a bunch of other senators all sat together right before COVID in a top secret government meeting and they said, by the way, psst, the economy is going to tank because this COVID thing is serious. The market's going down ski, just a heads up. And then they all ran and mass sold stock and it was to the tune of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Is that a free market or is that insider trading and rampant corruption? What is that? You tell me. And look, it's just, you wonder why people feel cynical about politics and you wonder why people are like, you know, throw all the, every election is a throw the bums out election. This is why. You're not fooling anybody with your, oh, free market. No, you are corrupt. You're supposed to be a public servant. What does that mean? I'll tell you what that means to me. What that means is not only should you not personally be able to own stocks or your family while you're in there, also... I would publicly finance elections. This idea that these cor that these politicians go run begging hat in hand to corporations every time there's an election cycle, go to Raytheon and Honeywell and Boeing and the military industrial complex and go to the big uh, financial institutions on Wall Street and uh, big oil, uh, big pharma, health insurance companies. You wonder why they're like, well, we can't really do anything on health insurance and we can't even so we can't do anything on health care, big pharma financial regulation, taxes. Oh, would you look at that? Every provision that does anything good that the American people want is stripped out. Gee, I wonder why. Could it be because you're serving your donor base that you just raised a gazillion dollars from? So there's multiple avenues of corruption that are yeah. the problem here. It's the corruption in the sense of uh, campaign contributions, but then it's also now the personal corruption of these assholes are insider trading day in and day out, and they are going to make decisions th that protect their bottom line and protect these companies. I mean, the, the big tech companies are a great example of this. We're having conversations about antitrust. Meanwhile, so many of these jackasses are directly invested in Facebook and all these other companies. Are they really going to vote to break up Facebook if they're, they got, uh, you know, $500,000 in a fucking stock portfolio with Facebook? Well, and that was one of the things that Business Insider exposed right. is some of the biggest, you know, loudmouth critics of these tech companies are actually, in reality, financial investors in them and benefit financially when they, um, you know, when their stock goes up in the stock market. No, I'm, it's utterly disgusting. It's insane. If you asked any normal person whether this should be allowed, they would say absolutely not. And yet, because they control the rules for themselves, it obviously makes it a gigantic barrier to be able to change. It does also kind of expose, I mean, to me, this is like a sort of perfect litmus test issue 
of whether or not you actually care at all about being there to be a public servant or whether you're there for self-aggrandizement, power, and personal enrichment is whether or not you think this should be legal. And it does separate out people who, like AOC, who's been outspoken about the fact that this should ultimately be banned and shouldn't be allowed, whatever. It does show that at least there is a different ideology there and a willingness to change some of the rules that govern um, members of Congress behavior. Because, listen, all of these people talk about they're so worried about the decline in trust and institutional trust and all this stuff. And then you go out and you say something like that. And they are the defend. reason for it. And, They're the reason for by it. By the way, this isn't, you know, it's not speculative when you look at the fact Unusual Whales on Twitter has done uh, their own analysis of the, the trades that are being made by members of Congress. And they're beating they're beating the market. They're beating like, you know, the top experts on Wall Street, whatever. That's not an accident. It's not because they're so brilliant and so just happen to be like savants at day trading. It's because they have inside info and they trade based on it. It's so blatantly obvious. They track members who sit on defense committees who own defense stocks. They track members who claim to be environmentalists and are invested in fossil fuel companies. They track 75 different members who stood to profit off of, you know, whether it was pharma or other PPE companies during the pandemic. And this is just completely rife and endemic throughout the whole thing. I also, I really did appreciate that they looked at the staffers too, because it varies from office to office, but sometimes the staffers are in as much control as the members of Congress actually are. And the staffers are wildly out of, um, out of step and out of date with what they're supposed to be doing already with the Stock Act, just in their disclosures. They were terrible in terms of hiding things and not um, being transparent with the public about what was going on. So yeah, for her to just dismiss this, to your point, she says it's a free market, like literally trading. They're cheating. They're trading on insider info. That's the opposite of like a fair playing field and a free market. That's exactly the opposite of that. That's a good point. Look, if you want to get into public service, do your job at public service. This is not public service Be at public all. Servant. And that may require some sacrifice. Like, is it too much to ask? All these people are rich already anyway. Exactly. No, it, uh, I now I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'm going to say because it's a position I've held for a long time. I truly believe corruption should be up there in the same class of crimes as assault, robbery, rape, murder, because this is the shit that totally and utterly degrades a nation. It degrades trust in the nation. It raises cynicism in the nation, and it absolutely obliterates our institutions. I know that Nancy Pelosi is one of the types that likes to clutch her pearls and our institutions are lovely institutions. Yeah. Yes. You are the reason nobody trusts them. You've been in office since 1872. Your husband trades on a daily basis, and every day he's making moves and just swimming in cash. There was a story not that long ago. What was it? $4 million or something he dumped of a certain stock. This might actually yeah. be the Facebook thing. Yeah. So he made a killing when he—what happened was they learned that this antitrust thing that, it, that was being debated and proposed was totally toothless— and he had the inside information on that. So he he invested in Facebook knowing that as soon as the business world learned it's totally toothless, Facebook stock would go up. Mm. And that's exactly what happened. Well, there's a whole trend of like Redditors and TikTokers who trade, trade solely based off what the members of Congress do. Based on what right. members of Congress are doing. Yeah. And that just and tells this idea you. Of disclosure. Like, oh, but we have to disclose. So so now I know the specifics of how you're a totally corrupt goon. 
No, you need to stop being a totally corrupt goon. That's the answer. It's like when they say, we're going to disclose our campaign contributions and who we're getting. No more dark money in politics. That's the weasel words that the corporate Democrats like to use. Mm. You'll hear the most corporate of corporate Democrats say, we need to get dark money out of politics. Wait, why did you just say the word dark? We need to get money out of politics. No, we need to get dark money out of politics. In other words, I'll tell you who's corrupting me. You're not going to do Dickie McGee's acts about it. So now you know who's corrupting me, but I'm still going to be corrupt and you're not going to do anything. That's their mindset. The other thing that's important about this story is the only reason she got that question, which she so rarely, all of our politicians so rarely actually get good questions, is because a mainstream outlet bothered to do this investigation. And so you can also see the way that the fact that the mainstream press so rarely covers these issues, it lets the politicians off the hook. So during the whole Build Back Better debate, there was so little discussion of right. the way that, you know, everyone's like, oh, what's Manchin doing and what's his game and whatever. It's so obvious. It's not if you ideological. Just, right. If you just look at who his donors are and same thing with Kirsten Cinema, just look at who her donors are and then you'll understand what her elaborate game is in this town. The Intercept ran an article titled Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire. He's got millions of dollars invested in all of the dirty fossil fuels, which he then sits on the climate committee and he's the head of the freaking committee. Yeah, that's right. That gets to determine what gets in and out of the bill for climate. <laughs> he's a literal coal baron, and then we're going to turn around and have him write the rules on climate change. That is not an exaggeration in terms of his position of power on that committee either. And then you have Kirsten Cinema, who ran campaigns when she was in Congress on, I'm going to get to D.C. and lower drug prices. Then now as a senator, she took a million dollars from pharma lobbyists and all of a sudden she's against lowering drug prices. And now they're talking about a compromise of, well, maybe we'll like lower the price of 10 of them by like 2025 or some shit. Like, Amazing. this is the problem. You guys are the problem. You guys lead to the direct erosion of trust in the system. It's institutional failure. And you can only rely on that argument of like, well, we're better than the other guys for so fucking long before everybody tells you to go fuck yourself. Yeah. And we're at that point right now, by the way, because of what's happening with Build Back Better, totally dead in the water. And yeah. everybody on the, every single critic on the left was 100 percent correct. Every single one who was like, listen, here's what's going to happen. If you decouple the bills, which is exactly what they did, Joe Manchin is either going to say, uh, let's water it down for like an eighth time and make it even worse than it already is and pass that. Or it's just going to die and he's going to ax it completely. Well, what happened? Pramila, hope you feel good. All the people who ended up voting for it, hope you feel good. Yeah, all the people who claim to care so much about our democracy and who talk a lot about the foundations and the building blocks of our democracy, banning this type of trading by members of Congress would be one of the most basic steps that you could take to help rebuild trust. And they're not economy. even talking about it. No Nobody's even talking about it. We're the only ones talking about it. No, no, no interest. I mean, AOC has been talking about True. it. There are a few, and I want to give them credit. But in terms of the leadership of the Democratic Party, Pelosi could not be more dismissive. I mean, she didn't even acknowledge that it was like an idea worth thinking about or anything. They, they think it's comical. And this is what happens when you're when she's been in Washington, D.C. so long. They don't even realize their corruption is corruption. They're like, what do you mean? This is just how the system works. Well, that's the problem, Nancy. It is corrupt, and it is how the system works, and we want to change that. And the fact that it's a laughable thought to you, oh, it's just a free market. I mean, God, these people are so insufferable. I hate them so much. Indeed. All right, so uh, let's move on to something else here, which uh, caught my eye. So Sam Harris was on his podcast recently, and um, he took some shots here, a little, little underhand shot, maybe a little, little subtweet. Little subtweet action, winking a nod to the audience, but 
um, he's fed up. He's fed up with other podcasters and independent media and alternative media who are pushing anti-vax ideas or pushing COVID skepticism or trying to craft this grand narrative of like it's a hoax and it was a plan from the beginning. So let's take a look at that. So there's an opinion that has solidified on the right politically, and it, it's, it appears at other points on the political spectrum, but it's mostly on the right, I would say. And it, it's also taken hold out in the alternative media wilderness among podcasters and Substack newsletter writers <laughs> that um, much of what has been communicated about COVID by the government and by the, the mainstream media has amounted to really a hoax, right? And, and then much of what we've done and demanded that others do in response to COVID has been, therefore, unnecessary and, and even unethical. And so everything from lockdowns to school closures to mask mandates to the vaccination campaign itself to um, downplaying the efficacy of ivermectin, right? All of this has been done for sinister political motives and based on corporate greed, right? So what we have now is something, I mean, the tens of millions of people, at least, believe that our entire response to COVID, I mean, basically everything we've done for the last 18 months or so, has had the ulterior purpose of increasing social control, right? I mean, basically, we've got people... This is the explicit claim one hears from, from all these quarters now that the whole purpose of this has been to soften us up for some kind of Orwellian acquiescence to state power. And then with respect to the vaccines in particular, it's also being driven by just the, the sheer profiteering motive of pharmaceutical companies. Now, I mean, there are many specific which what is points? odd because, of course, the vaccines are free to the citizenry. But anyway, go on. Right, right. Oh, yeah. So no. uh, we should just unpick all of this. But I mean, th- th- there are specific policies that one could debate. Obviously, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I'm at the moment. I, I think I'm currently uncertain about why kids in schools where all the kids have been vaccinated are still wearing masks. I think you could wonder about the wisdom or necessity of that, and, and I, you know, I'd like to talk about that kind of stuff. But it seems to me that this basic idea, which has, again, it's infected. These are not just uneducated rubes who are, who believe this. And and I'm not talking about, you know, the QAnon cult, although obviously this includes the QAnon cult, but I'm talking about many people who are quite smart, many, several friends and colleagues who have prominent podcasts, right, have fallen into this paranoid picture of what's going on. And, that, you know, they, they're extreme endpoints of this paranoia. There's the idea that Bill Gates is putting tracking devices into us <laughs> with the vaccines, right? I mean, so there, there's, there's the crazy end of crazy. But it seems to me that this basic picture, even without the craziest flourishes mm-hmm. on it, is more or less insane. I mean, the idea that we are dealing with something akin to the Chinese Communist Party here and... Mm-hmm that all COVID-related policies have been implemented merely to abridge our freedom politically, that does strike me as patently insane. So I will say, I think he's, at least in part, talking about uh, Brett Weinstein there. Um, Because Brett has gone heavy with the ivermectin stuff and 
I don't know to what extent he's downplayed the vaccine, but he leans so heavy into the ivermectin stuff that at, that at the very least it's like prioritizing that over talking about the efficacy of the vaccine. And I mean, look, I, I brought this study up a million times. Uh, the French study of over 20 million people, the vaccines reduce severe illness, hospitalization and death by 90 percent. So, you know, I, and I think honestly, I think the nail in the coffin of the anti-vax argument is just this notion that if you, even if you grant them everything that's in that VAERS program, which mm -hmm. is the, the, you know, if you have an adverse reaction to the vaccine, you're supposed to put it in this VAERS program, which, you know, and, and they keep a log of like, well, how are people reacting to it? Now, by the way, I don't even grant people everything in there because I think some people are, are so ideologically committed to anti-vax stuff that they'll just lie about stuff in there. But even if I grant them everything in, in there, you should still take the vaccine, even if every one of those things is true. Why? Because we have 800,000 deaths from COVID in the country. And even if you add up all the side effects, symptoms, some deaths, whatever, in VAERS, it still doesn't equal the 800,000 deaths in America and yeah. the 5 million deaths um, in, in the world. So, But I digress from that. Is Sam correct here? I think he actually is right about it, it's getting paranoid and very conspiratorial, and a lot of these people are wrong. But I think he misdiagnoses uh, who's to blame. Mm. Because I actually blame the system and the institutions yeah. for breeding this kind of conspiratorial thinking. Because they did lie to us every step of the way. And they were wrong about so much stuff. And they never were just like, hey, we're wrong. So, for example, Fauci early on was downplaying the efficacy of masks. Right. And, and, and then, then admitted that he knew he was doing that. Right. That he was doing it to try to keep masks for frontline front healthcare workers. But you still, like, it's but not you your job to lie and manipulate you people. Lie. It's your job to tell people what the actual facts so are. So, of course, people who are paying attention are going to be like, well, that's weird. They laughed out of the room the idea that this came from a lab. Yeah. It was a great John Stewart joke when he was on Colbert show where he's like, they literally have like the bat coronavirus research center in Wuhan. And you're trying to make people feel crazy for saying, hey, maybe it could have come from there. So they lied yeah. so much that it bred institutional distrust on top of big pharma being terribly greedy. They've bought the government. They're super corrupt. So you look at that and I understand why people's... Uh, skepticism becomes cynicism. Now, I'm against the cynicism because people oftentimes throw their hands up and say, well, it's all bullshit. Right. And I don't agree with that. You have to look at everything on a case-by-case -case basis and the vaccine right. actually does work. But I understand why people feel that way yes. because the institutions have failed them so much that they're like, well, I'm going to look anywhere else for answers. And unfortunately, they end up stumbling across Alex Jones or some crank doctor. And this is no different from the climate change debate where you have like, you know, 95% of climate scientists are like, yeah, climate change is happening and it's real. Then you have 5% who are funded by fucking Chevron who are like, no, it's not. And so, yeah, you got a handful of, uh, you know, COVID denialists or COVID hoax type doctors or people pushing alternative medicines. Why not look at them with the same sort of skepticism that you look at the institutions with? These people have a lot to gain as well, pushing yeah, alternative treatments. Like, uh, it's crazy how people shut their minds off and they don't look at the macro picture anymore. If 95% or 98% or 99% of doctors are talking about, of course, the vaccine works and it's been tested and all this stuff. And then you got one to 5% who are like, no. Why are those people, why do they get the Trump card? Why does everybody just shut up their minds and believe those people? So there is a lot to say about this. First of all, obviously, Sam is correct that there are totally insane theories out there, that there are people who have realized, recognized that there's an audience for either overtly um, advocating or, or laying out those conspiracies or sort of cherry picking things that fit into that conspiratorial mindset they've found that's a good way to get clicks or views or attention or whatever. And so there's no doubt that that ecosystem is real and it exists. The, the part that actually um, 
that I definitely want to dispute that I think his guest chimes in with about the pharmaceutical greed. Because they sort oh, of oh yeah they're wrong about that they sort yeah, of yeah. just dismiss this this out of hand like oh like, they think pharmaceutical greed yeah. has to do with the vaccines, I mean come on the the problem and what you're pointing to in terms of the institutional trust is that there are actually nefarious conspiracies with regards to COVID that are true right one of them is that of course the vaccine manufacturers have an incentive to what what would be the most profitable situation for them it's for them to sell at a premium their vaccines to the rich world, which yes, are free to you, but they are not free and they are making billions off right. of most profitable drug in history. So to sell at a premium to the rich world, to keep the poor world unvaccinated, That's right. yeah. so that variants continue to surface like Omicron, so that now what's the conversation? You guys need to get your boosters. We, The Pfizer CEO saying we might know we might need a fourth shot. Now we might need a new a new type of um, vaccine for Omicron. And those things may all be the case. It may be that the science bears out that it's necessary to get a fourth shot at some point, that we need a new formulation to deal with different variants. Those things all may be the case. Do I trust the Pfizer CEO no. who has a direct financial interest to be the one telling me that that's what I should be doing or that's what our government should be pursuing? And, absolutely not. And they did lie, by the way. The pharmaceutical uh, CEOs absolutely lied. All the initial studies that come out on the vaccines are all funded by the companies in question. So Johnson & Johnson funded their initial study on their vaccine and they juiced their numbers and acted like they were 10 to 15, 20% more effective than they actually were. And then when we got independent studies, we realized the vaccine is still effective, but it's 70% effective. It's not 95% effective. Yes. And this is something that's happened over and over again. With the, with the, the Merck pill, wasn't that the other well, so one? That, I, was actually, I actually yeah. jotted that down because I was going to bring that up. Yeah. So to get to the point on pharmaceutical greed, yes, there's a reason why there's no institutional trust. So what happened with this pill? They said, oh, we developed a COVID pill, uh, Monopiravir is called. And um, it was funded by U.S. taxpayers in part of Emory University, but elsewhere as well. And so uh, Pfizer comes out and says, oh, we did a study. It's 90% effective. Uh, or whatever, I know, I think they used, it may have been a lower number, like 50% effective or something like that. Um, and then when we got an independent study that came out, they said it's not even 50% effective, it's 30% effective. And this was after the U.S. government already committed to buying it, and by the way, paying 40 times more than what it cost to make, and we already made it on the front end with tax money. So... It, it, it's basically a total scam. And even when the FDA approved it, the people on the board said, this isn't terribly effective. But then they approved it. Yeah. Now, go look at the funding of the FDA. Who gives money to, to the FDA? Yeah. All the big pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. So the point and is... there's a revolving door where they expect absolutely. they're going to go sit on the boards of these so companies. So the point is, the corruption is absolutely real. The regulatory capture is absolutely real. Big pharma being greedy and corrupt is absolutely real. But that doesn't mean antibiotics don't work. Antibiotics do work. That doesn't mean the vaccine doesn't work. Independent studies show 90% effective against every illness, hospitalization, yeah. and death. So you need to be able to keep those two thoughts in your mind at the same time. And to your point, the problem is a lot of people have inverted the conspiracy theory. Yeah. So the, the idea, unfortunately, th this is prominent on the right, but also in many corners of the left. Yeah. They have this idea that, like, well, they're trying to push the vaccine on you, and they're trying to push on you for profit, and they're trying to vaccinate developing countries, and they're smart enough to not take it or whatever, you know, these weird theories that they've concocted. Like, oh, there's only a 7% vax rate in Africa or whatever it is, and that's because they're on, they know how dirty the West is, and they know that this thing's the problem. No, the conspiracy is Bill Gates sets up a charity to vaccinate the world. They need to vaccinate billions of people. They hit, like, less than 10% of their yeah. goal, and the the pharmaceutical companies keep the patent protection for their vaccine. What does that mean? That means that all these uh, factories and companies around the world, 
in developing countries too, that have the ability to make the vaccine, they're not allowed to make the vaccine because the West is protecting the patents. To get back to your point and come full circle, that means that only in the rich nations are they really getting the vaccine out there yes. and they're keeping it from the developing world. And that is a true, that is the true born conspiracy. Out reported conspiracy. Bill Gates was on the phone with basically all the heads of the major pharmaceutical companies days after COVID was declared a pandemic, laying out what he wanted the public health response to be in terms of getting vaccines out to the developed world. I mean, when I, you know, I've been on this for a while yeah, mm -hmm. and I've done a lot of digging on this from, this is not from crazy. This is like from the AP or from the New York Times. Um, he has controlled the response in terms of vaccine distribution to the poor world from the jump. COVAX is run in part by his entities, COVAX being the pathetic World Health Organization program that was supposed to vaccinate the developed world, I mean, the developing world, and which has been a total and complete failure at this point. He has an ideological opposition to getting rid of the patents. Why? Because the whole reason he's a billionaire is because he exploited a monopoly and patent laws to game the system for himself. So he has an ideological commitment to keeping those patent protections in place, one that also manifested itself in terms of um, HIV medications as well. Uh, he's been very influential in all of that. So that's the real Bill Gates conspiracy. The conspiracy is not that they want to get the vaccine to everyone. They want to get the vaccines in the rich world where we pay premium prices, our governments pay and premium they want prices, to keep the and they patents. want to deny it right. from the poor world. That's the actual conspiracy. And so... So if you let them make generics, you make less money. Yeah. So they're not letting them make generics. That's, you that's keep right. the patent. South Africa right now, they are trying to reverse, reverse engineer, engineer the vaccine, right? The Moderna vaccine, which has proven to be the most effective, something that is insane that they have to do this. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone's like, World War II effort, right. Mobile Z, we're all in it together. And then when it comes down to it, and you know, Africa's like, oh hey, could we uh, get some of the vaccine or like at least give us the the recipe so we can make some ourselves? Nope. So that's the conspiracy. Nope. The conspiracy is that the vaccine works, but they're keeping it from the rest of the world for profit. Now, to get to the other point he makes, because this one's interesting. So, you know, he's talking about how, like, oh, people feel like um, the government's just doing this solely to gain more control of your life. Mm. And he thinks, look, I think that's just absolutely insane. On this front, I happen to agree with him because there's no benefit for the government to what? Lock down the economy where the corporations suffer even more? The corporations run the government. The corporations don't want the economy locked down in yeah. any way, shape, or form. Well, the other thing is when they do explicit lockdowns, there is some public compulsion to compensate people like there was last right. time around. Right. Even Republicans, mm -hmm. you know, got mm -hmm. on board with giving people checks and some other support during that time. So that's the other thing that they're resistant to with a explicit lockdown. True. But what I will also say is he does miss something, though. He misses that usually when there is some sort of crisis, it is used. The government generally does use the crisis to gain more social control. For example, right after 9-11, Iraq War. Yeah. Right. And you had the Patriot Act where yeah. they, you know, the NSA spies on everybody, collects everybody's metadata. No more Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Totally tread the Constitution. No more due process. No more habeas corpus. This is all matter of record. So they did use a crisis to then clamp down at home after January 6th. One of the first conversations people were having were like, oh, we need a new Patriot Act. We need to make sure. Right. So the government absolutely does do that. I just happen to think that on this front with COVID, 
I don't, there's not much to gain on the front of COVID. Like, what would the government gain by ha clamping down and having more social control? If anything, they want to get back to normal more so because the normal situation for the government and the corporations who own the government, that was profitable for them and that was going well for them. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, listen, I would be open to being persuaded, as you're saying. Like, it's not that it's outside of the realm of our government elites that they would use a crisis to gain further control. I just haven't seen the evidence of that or that it makes sense well, in this particular instance. What I struggle with is that some of the conspiracies are getting super Alex Jonesy. Like, some of the conspiracies are going so far where they say, like— Somebody was talking about how, oh, they created the vaccine before COVID even hit, and that was evident. They wanted to keep an early treatment regimen from people so they could force them to take the vaccine. Why would they want to keep an early treatment regimen for people? My friend's a doctor. They were trying to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this goddamn thing from early on. And by the way, it's hard to have an early treatment regimen really reduce deaths because people— when they think they're a little bit sick, nobody goes to the emergency room. You go to the emergency room when you're already way too sick and an early treatment regimen wouldn't even work anymore. You know what I'm saying? So, like, the idea, like, the pandemic idea. Yeah. Like, no, the reason—yeah, they were working on an mRNA vaccine before COVID-19 hit because there's always been coronaviruses. And they've been—we're trying to work on a general vaccine for coronaviruses using the mRNA stuff. That's not nefarious. That was good science. But people are, like, misinterpreting it and reading between the lines. And it does get into Cuckooville really yeah. quickly when you start going down that road. Yes, it The fact does. of the matter is corruption and incompetence explains everything. So, like, you know, the fact that they were lying and bumbling and didn't know their ass from their elbow and messed it up in a thousand different ways, all the Fauci stuff, that's, like, total incompetence. And then the story we just told you about Molnupiravir and that pill and what's going on with the vaccines, total corruption is at play there. Like, that explains virtually everything, not some grandiose... It's a hoax. It's a pandemic. You know, that that stuff really gets like super silly, super quickly, in my opinion. Sometimes people give our global elites too much credit. Way too much credit. <laughs> Way too much credit. <laughs> For their ability to like come up with and execute some sort of plan like that. Right. It is a lot more about just follow follow the money. Be skeptical, but just because there are some conspiracies that are true, it does not mean that every conspiracy is true. And um you know, just because uh, someone is outside of mainstream media doesn't mean that they are correct, doesn't mean that they have your best interest at heart. That's a, that's um, a big point. Doesn't yeah. mean that they don't have their own incentives at play in what they're doing as it's well. All, look, it all comes back to I remember this and I have direct experience with this with my dad and alternative medicine. You know, those people are just as big hucksters or even bigger hucksters than the pharmaceutical industry. There's, there's, uh, there's a reason why something stays classified as alternative medicine. It didn't make the fucking cut to be medicine medicine. And so you got all these ideas out there. I, I, I've told the story before, but my dad died of lung cancer. He felt a pain in his back. He went to the hospital. They found out it was a tumor. The uh, cancer had metastasized from his lungs all the way to his back. So it was a tumor he was feeling on his spine where he felt the back pain. And he was going to a fucking chiropractor, and the chiropractor was telling him, just keep coming back. You'll be fine. We'll fix you. No worries at all. And, like, at some point, if you're an ethical person, you look at this guy who's been coming to you for a month, and he keeps getting worse and worse, and it looks like he's actually physically deteriorating, and you go, you know, maybe you should go to a real doctor. But, no, that guy would rather nickel and dime my dad. And go look into it. Don't take my word for it. The whole idea behind a chiro chiropractic medicine is this notion called subluxation, where every illness you ever have is because your spine isn't perfectly straight. Now, look. That's an anti-establishment medical practice. Because it's anti-establishment? Does that mean that is by definition correct? No! People are idiots, and they're wrong, and that happens all the time. So uh, I just think 
bring the same skepticism when you look at big pharma as when you look at alternative medicine and everybody else. Every doctor, if it's a doctor in the 0.02% of doctors saying some shit, maybe bring a little bit of skepticism to it. I don't want anybody to be cynical about anything, but I want you to be skeptical about everything. And the final point I'll make is, uh, to Sam Harris on this front, even though I, I think he's generally correct about what he's saying, yeah. he's not convincing anybody with the way he's talking about it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's very just like, it's insane. All right, next. Are you even trying to convince people or are you just like jerking off in your own little echo chamber? Like, don't be the equal opposite of what those people are, it, you know, when they go down this rabbit hole and have all these crazy theories. You can't just hand wave away all the crazy theories and say they're just crazy because they're crazy. Give some specifics. Give some details. Break it down. Okay, hydroxychloroquine. Turned out it didn't work out too well. Talk about that. Give me some studies on it. Give me some evidence. Give me some data. Talk about ivermectin. Okay, that didn't work out too well. Give me some evidence on it. Talk about why these people are wrong. Now, granted, we only saw a three-minute and some odd clip, but I do find that's a trend with Harris in many respects, where as mm. soon as he makes his mind up against something, there's, like, zero it's engagement with the actual thing. Dismissive. Right, yeah. Interesting. One thing that I found, I don't know, maybe my bar is set too low, but I actually found it a little heartening. The latest numbers are... Um, 85% of the adult population has gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. Right, There's yeah. only 15% of the adult population in America that hasn't received a vaccine. And given how much, in some cases, really justified skepticism of our terrible for-profit medical system there is, given some of the just outright atrocities that have been committed against um, the black community in the medical establishment and the way that Americans are just super, you know, naturally sort of skeptical of systems and that that streak has long uh, existed in American politics, I actually think that's pretty decent. <laughs> it could That would be, if you had told me at the beginning that at this point we'd be at just 15% that hadn't even had one dose, I'd say, actually, that's not too bad. So, you hear um, those more conspiratorial views and it, the sort of like, you know, the wrong and not correct conspiracies. You hear them really often in alternative media spaces. But in terms of people really acting on them in the public square, I don't think it's as much or as significant as is sometimes portrayed. Yeah, agreed. We get a lot of like viral clips of the Karen who refuses to wear her mask in spite of it all, et cetera. But I mean... I live in red America, and most people are basically doing what they're yeah. supposed to do and living in a decent and smart way. To Sam's point, the, the actual real conspiracy theorists and hardcore anti-vaxxers, they're a small group, but they're very loud and aggressive and very common online. And they have a disproportionate influence on public policy as well because they are so loud and aggressive. The anti-vaxxers have a mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, public in, policy influence? I think so, in terms of like the way the whole Republican Party has positioned themselves. Oh. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, it. I get his concern because it is true. It's it has seeped into alternative media and independent media, and it's it's at a point. It's like you're not speaking truth to power. You're just terrible at looking at evidence. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, true. All right. Speaking of speaking truth to power, we have someone who has actually done that in the real world um, and exposed a true conspiracy, which is the way that yeah, right, yeah. oil companies, um, you know, destroy communities, think they can get away with it, oftentimes do get away with it, act with complete impunity, and then, of course, set out to destroy Stephen Donziger's life. Uh, as I mentioned before, he has just been released from prison. He is not free. He is still in home confinement um, pending appeal uh, through April but very, very excited to catch up now with Steven Donziger. Steven, it is so nice to see you. Um, far from freedom, but at least home. How are you doing, my friend? 
Thanks for having me. It's a, you know, an honor to be with y'all again. Um, I'm hanging in there. You know, I, 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 that was a difficult, challenging experience on so many levels. And I've, I've carried, I realized I've carried like a lot of pain out of that prison into my home. Just the stories I heard and what I observed, witnessed. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I guess the best way to describe it is I'm kind of in a healing process um, and trying to get my energy back. I lost a lot of weight and, and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of food and I'm just trying to get recaptured who I was. Of course, hard to go back after that kind of experience, but I'm doing, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So what, uh, what exactly was the process that led to you being put back on house arrest as opposed to staying in a federal prison for six months? So a couple of points. I mean, first of all, Congress, um, when COVID hit, passed a law uh, called the CARES Act that allows um, prisons to put people who are in prison in home confinement if you know, if they feel like there's a risk of contracting COVID or a greater risk than normal. And given my advanced age, I say that kind of funny because I just turned 60 in September. Um, and this act applies or this provision applies to people 60 or over. So that was the legal authority that allowed the prison to make a decision, the Bureau of Prisons to make a decision to, you know, continue their custody of me, but have it take place at home. Um, specifically in Danbury, the prison was overcrowded. I mean, there were a lot more people there than it was designed for. For example, I was living in a cell with another man that was designed for one person. It was like 60 square feet. Jesus. And it was impossible to social distance um, in prison, just impossible. There are too many people too close together. And I think the prison um, looked at my situation. I was the only person in the entire compound, 900 men on a misdemeanor. Everybody else was there in a felony. Um, you know, for the first days, I got the feeling like they're like, what are you doing here? You know, we never see people like you in prison. You know, why aren't you home? Why aren't you in home confinement? Um, so I think they made it a decision based on their policy and based on this legal authority um, to release me. And I'm glad they did. I think it was an appropriate decision. Did you have any idea that that decision might be coming? And I'm also curious if you if you want to talk about it, you certainly don't have to, but a little more about the experience of being in there and like, what did you think about um, what was going through your head while you were while you were sitting there? Well, that's that's a long one, but I'll tell you, I, you know, first of all, I didn't, you know, getting release happened within like a 15 hour period. I was told and certain things happened. I had one last night and the next morning they hustled me out of there. Um, so it was very fast and it was surprising to me. And of course, I'm thrilled that it happened as is my family. Although I'll say, you know, in reference to your broader question, um, you know, I can't stop thinking of the people still in there. Um, I was in uh, Danbury Prison has, I don't know, maybe 10 different housing units, each of which have about 70, 80 people in them. Um, and the unit I was in, it was called Unit M. Uh, you know, I met a lot of people that I connected with. Um, one thing that happens in prison is the prison really isolates you from the outside. I'm kind of perplexed by this because, of course, you want people to maintain contact with the outside so when they get out, they can have connections and hopefully not recidivate. 
recidivate. So, but it was very isolating. Um, it was very limited phone calls. There were two phones for 80 people, very restricted minutes. Um, email was very restricted. Uh, it wasn't fast. It'd be monitored and go to some third party before it was sent to whoever was approved to receive it. It costs money to send emails. A lot of people don't have the money. Um, and, you know, there's no flow of information into the prison. There's no newspapers. Um, there's no internet access. Uh, there's TV, but, you know, in my unit, most to the extent there was news, most people were watching Fox News. Um, you know, and by the way, that's a whole other thing going on in there because a lot of that comes from just this anti establishment bias of people inside the prison, all of whom believe in some way or another, they've been screwed by the government, you know? So, um, you know, all of that leaves you with a need to actually connect with those right there, you know, other residents of this unit. I mean, they're called inmates. I prefer to use residents. I hate the word inmate, but others who are in there, and, you know, it leads to camaraderie, a lot of intense conversations about different things about life, about why people are in, you know, their stories. Um, and I found that part of it to be very interesting and frankly, very uplifting. Um, you know, as, as oppressive as the experience is, it, it provokes a response, a human response. Um, and ultimately it's, it's teeming with humanity and with stories and with ingenuity and with creativity and just everything from like how you can cook food on a radiator, um, or cook a burrito with a clothes iron. Okay. Which a lot of people are doing to, you know, how you fashion a weightlifting bar out of a water bag, um, how you think about a legal brief to try to reduce your sentence. Um, there's a lot of thinking, a lot of creativity, a lot of mutual self-support. I mean, I, I honestly felt like there was far more respect among people on the inside than there is in the outside world. I mean, people just respect each other. They respect each other's space, their privacy, their stories. I mean, no one pries, you know, people respect the dignity of each other. Now, obviously I'm in a low security prison and a lot of the people, although they were serving long sentences were very close to getting out and people were generally, you know, I think very well behaved and, and that's why they were in that particular prison. Although the conditions were very difficult, largely because of a COVID lockdown, we couldn't go outside. Mm. So even, even though it was a low security prison, the conditions approximated a high security prison in many respects. Um, and that's what I experienced. So, you know, I went from a nonviolent first time offender, my, you know, I believe I'm innocent, but let's just assume, I mean, let's just acknowledge I was convicted in a non-jury trial by Judge Preska of a misdemeanor. Um, no one has ever spent a day in jail for the, the offense I was convicted of. Um, it's on appeal. I hope it'll be reversed, but you know, it's just very unusual to send a person like me into prison for this. And it became more unusual when, because of the COVID lockdown, I ended up in a situation where the conditions were just abysmal in many respects. Um, you know, we couldn't get out and I was living in a little cell in a hall with bars. I mean, it is a prison. And, uh, you know, I was next to people serving 
25, 30 year sentences, some of whom have committed violent crimes. Um, I, I didn't feel unsafe. You know, everyone was decent and nice and those that had were in for those types of crimes, I felt were very rehabilitated, um, decent people. But, you know, it's just, people need to understand that what judges Kaplan and Preska and Chevron did to me was to put me in a really, really serious prison, doing very, very hard time. And frankly, I think that's one of the reasons why the prison authorities kind of looked at the situation and decided I would be better situated to serve out the rest of my sentence at home. So would you say, Stephen, that like, because I didn't know the mechanics of how you were able to get out and what was going on behind the scenes, but it almost, the inevitable conclusion almost strikes me as the lower level officials who run the prison, whoever may be the warden, whatever, they're significantly less corrupt than like the Chevron connected judge that mucked up a charge and locked you up. Do you agree with that conclusion? Well, the way I would describe it is this. Um, the Bureau of Prisons is a bureaucracy that is run by professionals. Um, you know, every bureaucracy is complex. There's good people, there's bad people. But generally speaking, the Bureau of Prisons is a very independent bureaucracy. They, they, they run their own affairs. And they do not like judges telling them what to do. I mean, judges do their job. And after they sentence people, the custody part becomes the exclusive province of the BOP. And I think when they looked at this from a, you know, from the standpoint of their perspective, which was like, what's the most secure way um, to carry out our mission with regard to this particular individual, I think they came to a completely appropriate conclusion. But I would agree that, that the Bureau of Prisons or whoever was making these decisions, and it's not just at the prison level, it's at the regional level and, you know, the higher levels of, of the bureaucracy, um, you know, they clearly had no interest in doing Chevron's bidding in the same way that the judges Kaplan and Preska have shown they're willing to do for many years now. Yeah, I mean, of course, um, so... As people probably know, myself, Brianna Joy Gray, Marion Williamson, and Katie Halper did a live stream with a lot of guests to try to call attention to what was going on. You're always the most effect effective advocate for yourself. You've had to be, but since you couldn't speak, we wanted to make sure that you were still on people's minds and try to raise some money for your legal defense fund. So we loved the timing that it was the very next day <laughs> <laughs> that you were ultimately released. We're like, well, look, we did it. Let's just let's see who else Hooray. is going to bust down in prison next. Um, but in all seriousness, um, you know, I think people really, they were heartened to see that there was something positive that actually happened here because there has been a lot of grassroots attention on your case and people trying to figure out what they could possibly do. And so I wonder, even though this process was independent of our live stream and those efforts, but, you know, I wonder if you've had a sense that opinion is being moved and that uh, positive uh, trajectory is is actually progress is actually being made because of the efforts of the grassroots to call attention and, and to help support you and, and just, you know, explain to everybody what an absolute injustice this has been. Absolutely the case. And, and I, don't, I don't think I completely explain my view of how I got out uh, in my previous answer. Um, I do think your live stream and the broader attention that was being paid to my case in the public while I was in prison 
played a significant role in probably how they looked at this um, and deciding to release me. I mean, uh, you know, first of all, let's start with the fact that many independent media outlets, you know, you, Crystal, and, and you, Kyle, and Chris Hedges, and Katie Halper, and, you know, Marianne Williamson, and Brianna, I mean, so many people have paid attention to this case because it's such an extraordinary case. I mean, it's, it's, you know, obviously we have a lot of problems in our society with the criminal justice system, but this is unique in that it's the first corporate prosecution of an activist. That is, I was prosecuted, I'll remind people, not by the government, which refused to prosecute me, but I was prosecuted by a private law firm that had Chevron as a client after I had won or helped my clients in Ecuador win a large pollution judgment against Chevron. So that's just unprecedented. It's wrong. And it's that is the key issue on my appeal. You know, we think this whole case is illegal and unconstitutional. Be that as it may, it still happened. And the fact that you folks and others paid attention, I think made an enormous impact um, in the prison. What do I mean by that? You know, when the staff knows that people care about a particular person, they also begin to look into it and examine it and also care. You know, that person has to be respected. And I will say that the very professional staff at Danbury, um, many of whom were really fighting against all odds to try to help people in terms of their rehabilitation, because there's not a lot of money for programs, um, they respected me. You know, I was getting many, many letters every day, books. Amnesty International was instrumental in you know, putting out an urgent action bulletin to 700,000 people. And when the mail would come, it would come every day other than weekends, and they'd bring a big bin in and they'd say, mail, and everyone would gather around, you know, and hoping they'd get a, one letter and I was walking away. It was almost embarrassing. I'd have 30 letters. I mean, you know, 98% wow. of them, I didn't, I didn't know the people who were sending them, but it didn't matter. They were just beautiful letters. I read every word and everyone quickly realized that is my mates in the prison quickly realized who I was um, or I had a, a, that kind of story, you know, because no one really knew what the hell I was doing there. And everyone assumed I was maybe there on tax evasion or some white collar mm. type of crime. Mm. And, you know, I didn't bring in any articles about me and you can't Google me because you can't get on the internet. So no one really knew my story. And then when they saw these letters coming in, people started to ask and I started to explain it. And, you know, the best part is there were so many people who we take these letters into this little space near this bookcase in the back of the unit, there's a table and we'd open them and pass them around and people would read them and they were just enthralled with these letters that were being sent to me, um, enthralled with the level of, of, of support I was getting. And I think that your live stream and all these other things played a big role. I mean, I, you know, the reality is I don't know exactly how or why I was released. By the way, this is speculation because I haven't talked to anyone in the Bureau of Prisons. Yeah. You know, I was just told what they were doing and I've, I've since kind of learned how the process works. And I think that's probably what happened. You know, I don't want to say, oh, the Bureau of Prisons is releasing me because I'm getting media attention. I mean, the, I mean, the Bureau of Prisons is releasing me because as they look at their needs and their needs to keep me in custody and, you know, the fact that I, 
you know, that was there in a misdemeanor, I think they made a decision based on their own policy. But I also think the outside involvement of the letters and the media um, helped me. And it also helped others in my unit. You know, it just, it just raised the level. It mattered. Mm. And, you know, by the way, when Amnesty sends out a urgent action for someone in prison and wherever they are in the world, you know, prisoner of conscience, these letters, <laughs> you know, I never understood the idea of these letters as well as I do now, having mm -hmm. received them. I mean, they, they kept me going, like spiritually, energy-wise, every single day. And even the days mail didn't come, the weekends, I would read my old letters. I have so many letters. I'm, I'm going to have to do something with them because I want people to understand this, what I'm talking about because they lift the spirits of the person they're trying to silence, in this case, me. They also lift the spirits of all the others who are next near that person, know that person. And I think they really, there's like a flow of accountability that happens over the prison itself when the authorities know that, that these there's a ma massive number of letters being sent in from around the world. And, you know, it wasn't just the letters, I'm probably talking too much here, but yeah. you know, the congresspersons, the 10 congresspersons who wrote that letter, you know, all of this contributes to a sense that that people are looking um, into a situation that usually never gets looked at. You know, the prison system is dark, my friends. I mean, you know this, you know about criminal justice in America. It's a dark place in our society. And it, you know, they're not used to people looking at it. So all of that I think contributed to a great degree to positive things that were happening inside that's a, a truly a, a beautiful story um so you know what i want to ask you is i remember the day you were sentenced and cnn jake tapper and a bunch of other establishment media outlets for the very first time mentioned you and and ran articles on it What's your reaction to that and the, the total and complete lack of interest when it really mattered most when they could have done something about it and helped shape public opinion? Disappointing. Look, I used to be, people might not know this, before I became a lawyer, I was a journalist. I was the UPI bureau chief in Managua when I was in my 20s um, during the Contra war down in Nicaragua. I'm dating myself. You guys probably weren't even born then, but you know, I, I have a whole history in journalism and I am stunned. Um, for example, that the New York times has never written a story about my situation and it's not because there's a lack of interest. This is a, you know, whether you like me or not, this is a fascinating newsworthy story. What's happening to me. So, you know, the fact that, Chevron has such enormous influence or the fossil fuel industry generally, which they spend massive sums of money on advertising in the big media. Um, I'm just, it's disappointing. So I'm happy Jake Tapper did the story, you know, I'm out available for an interview. If he wants to do a follow-up, haven't heard from him. <laughs> um, you know, but, but what I decided to do, you know, when I first got into detention, I'm like, God, we got to get news coverage. And, you know, we pitched, probably multiple people at the times and everyone like wanted to do it. And then an editor would stop them. And there was something going on there. And I later realized that their lawyer is a Chevron lawyer, Ted Boutros, their media lawyer is works for the same law firm that Chevron had hired to attack me uh -huh. for the last several 
Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. So the New York Times is, is to me, very conflicted on this particular story, not to mention other stories, but in this one, they just couldn't deal with this story and they still haven't really covered it, nor have the networks other than a little of this, a little of that. So, you know, I can't sort of spend my energy worrying about that. I got too much going on. What I have chosen to do, and I think we've done this very effectively, is to work with independent media. And, you know, people like y'all and others who have these platforms. Um, and, you know, I've been on Michael Moore's podcasts and Ralph Nader's and Chapo Trap House and Breaking Point and The Rising when Crystal, you were there. Um, I'm honored, you know, because those are the outlets that have the capacity to actually tell the truth and to give out accurate information about things that are really happening in our in our world in ways that the big media do not. So, you know, I'm just amazed at the ability of us to get our narrative out there without having to work with the big media. Yeah. I mean, there's so many people know about this now, and I think that it's beautiful. I mean, there's so much power in independent media. Y'all know this better than me, this is your world, but I've noticed as a person who's trying to get his story out and get the story of the Ecuadorian people out, you know, people who have for 50 years have suffered horrifically at the hands of Chevron with the pollution down in the Amazon. You know, I, I'm just so thrilled to that we have these ways to tell the story that people can hear about ways, by the way, that prior to the internet, you know, when I was younger did not exist. So we're good. Although I will say the mainstream media, the big media still needs to cover this story. We're going to keep pushing for it. Yeah, no, 100%. They have the ad dollars. We have the people. That's the difference. Yeah, well, they also have the elite attention. I mean, that's, right. yeah. that's the challenge with independent media is it takes just like an overwhelming display of force yep. for them to even notice <laughs> that you exist. I mean, that's that's really the the challenge I think that we face in this uh, in this sphere right now. You know, I know you're already uh, a true advocate for justice before this experience, but did being in federal prison change your view of the criminal justice system in any way? Wow. Um, not conceptually, but yes, in the details. Um, it was hard to see it from the inside. A lot of people don't know, but in 1996, I wrote a book that was published by Harper Perennial called The Real War on Crime. I used to be a criminal defense lawyer in Washington, D.C. for the public defender when I got out of law school, and I represented children, juveniles, wow. accused of crimes for two years. And I was so frustrated then with the system that I edited this book um, called The Real War on Crime, as I mentioned. and it identified a lot of the problems that, you know, that were manifesting in a significant way in the 1990s, including the prison industrial complex, two sentences that were too long, you know, too much discretion for prosecutors, the sentencing guidelines, I mean, mandatory minimums, all those problems that ended up stuffing our prisons with bodies, you know, through the 90s and the 2000s in the ways that the world has never seen before. I mean, the levels of incarceration in America never used to be this high. In the 1970s, they were not this high. And it's very obvious that prisons are starting 
a while to serve a particular, I would say, you know, nefarious function in a society based largely on inequality of wealth, which is what I would describe America as. And um, to have written that book from an academic standpoint, I was a young lawyer at just out of Harvard at that point, and then 25 years later to go on the inside to see the darkness from the perspective of a prisoner, which is what I was. I mean, I wasn't there as a journalist. I was there as a real prisoner. Um, was mind blowing. I mean, it was just mind blowing. And, and, and to see the problems I had written about in the 90s still exist, but even to a worse degree in the year 2021 in Danbury was unbelievable. I mean, I need to write about this. I, I can't sit. I, 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 I kept a journal. Um, and I just think, you know, there's a lot that most Americans, even though the most of say, yeah, the prison system stinks. I get that. It's dark. But like people don't really understand how bad it is yeah. on the inside and how little opportunity there is to, to function as a human being, how little you know, how the system really is, is based on a very severe form of dehumanization from the first time you walk in and they take your clothes from you and they put them in a box. Like they, they you know, I actually wore this jacket, a sport jacket and a decent shirt and jeans and, and shoes. And, you know, I had to take all my clothes off and they gave me like a prison outfit that almost felt like cardboard paper mm. and strip search me and you know, you go through this like entry process. Then like 15 minutes later, I went back to the room where I had walked in and I saw all the clothes I'd just been wearing when, when my wife dropped me off, you know, and hugged me goodbye in a like crunched up in a box that they were gonna send to my home. Like they don't even let you keep your clothes there for when you get out. Mm. And I almost felt like I saw those clothes and I felt like, oh, those are the clothes of that guy who died. Because mm. I had this bizarre memory. I don't know if you've ever experienced death up close. Someone you know, you know, and I have. And, and you know, when someone passes suddenly, you know, and you're with them, you know, you go somewhere like a hospital and they take the clothes off. And when it's all over, the body goes to the morgue and you get the clothes, mm. you know. And... When I saw my clothes in that box, I'm like, God, I, I feel like I've died. And I can tell you, I mean, not literally, but it's just something about it in me died in that moment. And as I look back in prison, I think something in me died in prison and it's still in that prison because the place sucks the life out of you. I mean, to survive prison with your humanity intact takes a huge amount of energy. And I realized, I think one reason I lost so much weight in prison is because I was expending so much energy to get through the experience, to not become what they wanted me to become, which was an inmate, mm. to maintain humanity um, and my um, connectivity to other human beings on the outside and on the inside, to be able to laugh even in prison to, to find irony and absurdity in prison, which I did, um, to find hope, I did find hope. I mean, all these human qualities that I think we take for granted on the outside, 
in prison become much harder to sustain because mm. of the control and I would say the dehumanization process that takes place where your identity is just stripped and the prison wants to look at everyone in there as the same. It's just an easier tool from a management standpoint. Okay, let's move all the prisoners to rec. Let's all go to the chow hall. Like no one is seen as an individual. We're all just this blob of people to be managed, except when you're in the unit and the guards are not around and people start connecting with each other. You know, then it's really human. But when the guards are around and you're being managed, it's it's just very dehumanizing. So, you know, I don't know what, I don't remember your question. I don't know if I've answered it. And I think you, you answered, answered it. Pretty well. I asked yeah. if it changed your view of the criminal justice system. And so I think yeah. you've explained that, like, it, from a policy perspective, yeah. no, but just the actual true understanding of what that looks like, what it feels like, what it does to a person. Yeah, so, it, it, so the short answer is it didn't change at all, it, it, but it did deeply enhance my understanding of what I kind of had already known, filled it in with lots of details. Um, I want to just tell one story, if I may, Please. that I was thinking about yesterday. Because, uh, you know, one of the things I've done in the week I've been out is I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what I saw. And, and I can't believe half the stuff I saw go down in there, you know, both the good, the bad, the ugly. But there were some really elderly prisoners who in my mind represent no threat to anybody and should not be in prison, regardless of their crime. I mean, people have been there for years and years and years and years, and they're walking around with walkers. Wow. You know, and they can't walk or wheelchairs. And there was one man who clearly was deteriorating and he couldn't keep his cell clean. He was, he was living alone in a cell. Everyone else had two people because no one could live with him because he, he couldn't control his bodily functions. And he needed, he needed help. So the solution for the Bureau of Prisons is like rather than move him to hosp you know, hospice or a nursing home or get him a nurse, they hired another inmate, a much younger man, put him in the cell next to his cell and gave him the job of essentially being his nurse. Mm. And the young man had no training in nursing, but I observed this go on for several days and the young man could not have been more compassionate and kind to the older man who he really didn't know, except through this relationship, helped him with every little thing, you know, from bathing to eating, um, talk to him in a beautiful way. And, you know, for all of this, he was paid 25 cents an hour, wow. like $30 a month. Wow. So the Bureau of Prisons was saving, you know, who knows, 2,000, um, um, I mean, thousands of dollars a month by not paying a professional. Right. Okay to take care of someone who never should have been there, that taxpayers are paying to be in a prison, okay, when he can barely function. And one day I had been out at the rec yard, this is before we got locked down, and I came back to the unit and 
this older man was just gone. He left. And it's like he just got scooped out and disappeared. And his cell was open and it had been disinfected and there were giant fans like blowing in it to keep it, to kind of clean it out because there were other bodies, two other men were going to move into the cell that very night. And I said, what happened to this person? And I mean, I know his name, but I'm not going to repeat it. But he said, I said, what happened? Like, oh, he, he, he's going home. And he was not vaccinated. So they don't let you leave. If you're not vaccinated, you have to go into a quarantine for 14 days which is another bizarre thing going on is when you go into a COVID quarantine in the prison, the only place that can happen is in the punishment unit where you're in these solitary confinement cells. So like anyone who has a COVID symptom who says it knows they're going to go be punished in the worst part of the prison. So people don't want to admit they have a problem, you know, in any event, he, he went to this other unit, which you could see from our windows. It's, it was like 30 yards away. It was like the next unit over. And you know, I kind of moved on with my life in prison, forgot about it. You know, the young man did too. I became friends with the young man who had been taking care of him. We, we talked a lot about things, beautiful, kind person. And one day we were just sort of by chance hanging out near the window together. And we looked up and we saw this older man leaving that other unit. Um, in his khakis, pressed, he looked handsome. Mm. And behind him was one of the guards carrying a giant duffel bag. I don't know why that, you know, grabbed me so much, but it, <laughs> Because the younger man who was taking care of him, you know, saw him leaving. I'm sorry. That's all right. I got close myself. This is crazy. He ran up to the window, this little window, and yelled, "Bye, bye! I'm so happy for you." Yeah. They had a relationship. And, you know, they couldn't say goodbye, like in the normal way. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's yelling out the window. I don't know. It's just, I was happy for the older guy that he was getting out of there. The younger guy who I'd become friends with was so happy for the older guy. And people get really happy when people leave. They're not jealous. They get really happy. I mean, it's such a, it's such a horrible story in some ways, and then in other ways, such a, a beautiful and profound story about just humanity. You know, even in that. Well, thank you for helping me understand. But I, I just not, you know, I'm I'm just still processing all this stuff. But that you're exactly right. I mean, why did that story grab me? Because I couldn't effing believe that the Bureau of Prisons was paying this younger man 30 bucks a month to be this older man's nurse. I couldn't believe the humanity of the younger man when he was taking care of this older man. 
And then I couldn't believe like the, the humanity of rushing to the window, but also the inhumanity of, of just not being able to hug them. So Stephen, you know, I just can't explain. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, let me ask you this. I, I hope that wasn't too, not no, in keeping was, with the that idea was of this program. I, yeah. Profound and, and interesting and touching for sure. Um, big picture, when you zoom out and, and look at, you know, the entire prison system now having been on the inside of it, and you would have a much better sense of this than I would for sure, given I, I've never been inside. Uh, what do you think it is that ultimately leads people to end up there? Is there, are people dealing with uh, undiagnosed mental illness or people, are there people who are genuine, genuinely pathological? Is it people who basically had a rough roll the dice in life and, you know, maybe fell in with the wrong crowd or did what they had to do to survive. And then that thing ended up being terrible. What's your sense of it? Big picture. Is it a mix of all those things or do you feel like it falls more in one camp than the other? It's all those things. And, and, you know, I'll remind people like my experience was narrow. I was in one low security prison, largely in one building with 80 people. But I do think I saw a pretty representative mix. Um, and I think you, you know, there, there's what I would call kind of the drug crowd, people who were dealing drugs, you know, be it methamphetamines or cocaine or heroin. And they got caught, you know, and they got, they pled or got convicted of crimes like conspiracy to distribute heroin. And, you know, they, Many of them acknowledged that that's what they did. They took a calculated risk, was making a lot of money. I knew I'd probably get caught at some point, you know, and they're there. Some are there for really long sentences, you know, for drug offenses like that. Um, I would argue way too long, 20, 25 year sentences, just makes no sense. Um, then you have um, a lot of people in this prison who are known as SOs. SO stands for sex offender. And let me explain that whole phenomenon, okay? Since the invention of the internet, the many federal authorities, in both, I should say many law enforcement authorities, trolled the internet for chat rooms. And then they fake identities to try to get people to engage in chats regarding sex with underage people. And there were, oddly enough, lots of otherwise respectable people in prison who like for one reason or another, like fell victim to these, what I would call entrapment schemes. Mm -hmm. um, they sent an inappropriate text, never met the person, never touched the person, never saw the person. But just on the basis of a text, they get charged federally. And for that crime, which is enticing a minor, you know, through the internet, which Congress passed a few years ago, um, there's a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years. And I saw people there literally had their lives blown up by sending a text. By the way, I'm not justifying this kind of behavior, but I'm just saying the sentences were draconian and for a crime that had no victim. And 
there are, for some reason, Danbury Prison is a place a lot of people who did that type of crime go because it's a low-level prison and, you know, they're considered to be safe there. You know, so you have the drugs, you have those types of kind of, you know, what I would say internet-based inappropriate interactions um, in the sex area. And then you have, uh, you know, people with financial crimes, tax evasion, and, uh, you know, my license wasn't in order to conduct business in this state. And, you know, a lot of crimes that I think in typical countries would not be considered criminal. They'd be like civil problems where you could pay a fine for. I mean, really minor, minor stuff. People in three, four, five years didn't report, you know, a foreign transaction to the IRS. You know, as and it's an largely example, small business people. There. Sorry to cut you off, but it's largely small business people. You're not running into the CEO of Coca-Cola in there. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah, of course. It's low hanging fruit. It's small business people. Yeah. I mean, look, look, I mean, yeah, you know, the, the CEO of Chevron was not in my unit. Yeah, after right. yeah. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a world? <laughs> that would be a different world. He should be in that prison. Um, well, that's actually a good segue to the future. Um, I want to know about uh, what your appeal process is. Um, if the appeal is unsuccessful, when does your home confinement end? And... Um, I want to talk about the people of Ecuador in a minute and where the fight goes from here. But, you know, is is this six month sentence, is that the end of your legal jeopardy or can Chevron come after you for something else? So my six month sentence ends on April 25th. Um, I'm hoping it won't go that long. And one way it can not go that long is if I win my appeal, which I think, you know, was argued on the 30th of November before three judges in the New York Federal Appellate Court, all of whom were appointed by President Trump. Um, but oddly enough, uh, they seem to take great interest in some of the issues my legal team had raised, including the whole idea of the sort of unsupervised prosecution by a private law firm after it had been rejected by the U.S. government, um, and whether that's consistent with the Constitution and the rule of law. So. You know, I have hope that we can prevail on this appeal. And if that happens and the decision could come down at any moment, any day or weeks or even months from now, I have no idea. But it's possible if it comes down soon and we win, I will, this will end and I will be released from this detention immediately. And the other thing that can happen is the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, we've been calling on him, Amnesty International just put out a third urgent action yesterday about this, to take back my case from the private law firm, the private Chevron law firm, and run it as a DOJ case and dismiss it um, for reasons that the DOJ already used to not prosecute me. Um, so Merrick Garland has within his hands the power to solve this problem right now, this very day, and he has refused to do to do so to take it up, despite multiple calls by people in Congress and by the public and by lawyers and by our my own legal team to do so. So I'm again uh, urging Mr. Garland to look at this and take it seriously, review it, and stop this what we believe is an obvious illegal corporate prosecution 
from continuing, and also, by the way, to get the United States government back in conformity with international law, because as I think you know, the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention issued a ruling in September that my detention pre-trial was arbitrary, illegal, and violated the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and also that there had been a staggering level of bias by the judges, by Kaplan and Preska, um, in favor of Chevron and against me. So for all those reasons, uh, regardless of what the Court of Appeals does, um, Merrick Garland has it within his power to end this now, and, and I hope that that happens. So if it doesn't happen, I'll just be here until the 25th of April. Now, in terms of, you know, what can Chevron do at that point? I mean, I don't know. I mean, Chevron has used 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to target me. Um, I hope they don't continue to target me. I don't think, frankly, it's helped them. Um, I think it's built up knowledge of their environmental crimes in Ecuador to a much greater degree around the United States and the world. But, you know, they they think differently than I think most people. I think they they you know they have a law firm that's anxious to spend money and continue this campaign. Gibson Dunn and Crutcher. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. I mean, if they do continue to go after me, I obviously have lawyers willing to fight for me and protect me, and we'll we'll just have to deal with it. What's um after that? What's next for you? Can you get back into law? If not, do you see yourself? on the activist front, do you see yourself maybe getting into media in some sense? Because obviously you have a very, very powerful voice. You have a, a devoted and rightly earned following. So what are you going to do with that? In other words, Chevron might not target you, but will you target Chevron? <laughs> so that's a good question. Um, you know, that kind of you know, wanting to hold Chevron accountable, obviously, is something that, you know, lies deep within my soul. Um, I take my obligations as a lawyer uh, seriously. Um, I have clients who, who are hurting and have been hurting for decades down in, in the Amazon. Um, and I work also with other lawyers in service of these clients. Um, by the way, I've been disbarred in New York, although I have not been disbarred in DC. Um, so I can't really be a lawyer anymore in the traditional sense, but what I can do is continue my advocacy um, and use the skills I've developed over the years to try to continue to help my clients and also help other human rights victims around the globe. So. You know, I love human rights work. It's what I do, um, I think, effect, you know, effectively. And I want to continue doing that work and, you know, working with other lawyers who are on the front lines, earth defenders, water protectors, to, to really help save the planet. And, and more specifically, in this particular case, be sure that the indigenous peoples of Ecuador get the monies they have legitimately won through court in a case affirmed by Ecuador's Supreme Court so that they can clean up their ancestral lands and protect their cultures and, and save their lives and save the Amazon rainforest for all of us because we all benefit from it. So, you know, I want to continue doing that work. On a personal level, though, this has been painful, mm. no doubt, for me and my family. And, you know, we're thinking through what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Um, from a professional standpoint. And there's a lot I want to do beyond this particular case. But of course, I want to be sure that it's 
there's enough lawyers and staffing in it so that the, the campaign, this historic campaign, um, this winning campaign, I mean, the people of Ecuador have won this case. I want to remind people of that just because I'm locked up doesn't mean we lost. It actually is the sure sign that we won. I want right. to won this yeah. case. And, and now the, the last lap is to make sure the money goes into the trust fund and is used for the cleanup that the court has ordered and that Chevron has tried to avoid now for many years. So I'll be helping with that, but it'll be led by other lawyers. And I will then focus on, you know, playing whatever role can be productive. And I'd also like to, you know, I have this dream, by the way, of doing like some sort of media company that sort of is in the environmental justice slash human rights law space. And I think that's sort of what I do. And, you know, I'd like to continue speaking out and, and being involved in, in these issues globally and in the United States and, of course, locally here where I live in New York. Well, I think that is incredibly needed. I think you would be extremely effective at it. And I think I can speak for both Kyle and I when I say we would certainly do whatever we could to help get the word out um, if you do take on a Thank media you. project like that. Um, but I did want to, you know, bring it back full circle to the people of Ecuador. I mean, this has all come from the crimes that Chevron committed there, the fallout of which people will live with for generations. Speak to that, um, speak to the crimes themselves, and also speak to what is the next step in trying to get some measure of justice for those individuals. Thank you, Crystal, and I'm glad you brought it back to that. Um, I mean, basically what Texaco and now Chevron did in Ecuador is, in my mind, ecocide. I mean, it was basically a deliberate decision by a private company to engage in operational practices that they knew would kill people and they did it to save money and they ended up doing things that ended up killing no one knows the precise number because you know there's no actual empirical study that's been done but i would estimate based on what i've observed after having taken over 200 trips down to this region thousands of people have died of cancer and other oil related diseases because Texaco in the 1960s and 1970s made a decision to deliberately pollute, to deliberately take the, the, the waste that is a necessary byproduct of oil drilling and dump it into rivers and streams in the Amazon that the local indigenous groups and rural communities have been relying on for their drinking water, for their bathing and their fishing. And over time, um, a whole area became poisoned, 1,500 square miles, and it's still poisoned to this day. And a lot of people who live in this region do not have enough money to buy bottled water, and they continue to drink out of these contaminated um, surface water sources, rivers and streams, as well as wells that go into the ground that are also where the groundwater is contaminated because of the 1,000 open-air toxic waste pits unlined that Texaco built um, where at their drilling sites. And, you know, this pits are not supposed to be made that way. And, you know, they weren't made that way in the United States or any other country um, in the North. So why did they do it that way down there? You know, so the, the pollution problem is still there. 
Anyone, by the way, can travel there and see it with their own eyes. Um, there are open sore waste pits that have pipes on the side that Texaco built that run the, the contents into rivers and streams. And there's, it's really grotesque to see it. It's called the Amazon Chernobyl for a reason. And you know, it's not like the people who were affected went out and just took justice into their own hands. I mean, they went to court, you know, they went, they, they availed themselves of the rule of law of access to their own court system in the venue where Texaco and Chevron insisted the trial take place in, in Ecuador. They had access to lawyers like me and others. Um, and we, we battled for eight years and won a case that's been affirmed by the Supreme Court of Ecuador, the Constitutional Court of Ecuador, and by the way, by the Supreme Court of Canada for enforcement purposes. And they still won't pay the judgment. Instead, they attack me. And, you know, it's important people understand that well, a lot of people are attacking me and or talking about me and I'm on your show and I'm, I'm getting a lot of attention. You know, we cannot you know, focus on Steve Donziger at the expense of what really this is really about, which is obviously the indigenous peoples of Ecuador who continue to suffer and die at, at the hands of pollution deliberately caused by an American oil company in their homeland. And we have to get the focus back on that. Um, and keep the focus on that. And, you know, I need to do that better. And I think we all need to do that better. But you know, Chevron is going to have to pay this judgment and hopefully that will happen soon. Commit a crime and go to prison, commit 5,000 and call yourself a corporation and get a tax cut. That seems to me to be the way it works. Um, final question, given everything that you've gone through personally and how Chevron basically tried to ruin your life and you wound up in prison and you've been, you know, on house arrest for way, way too long, would you do it all over again? If you could go back? It's not a fair question. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fairest question. <laughs> good question. Not, you know, it's a good question. So, you know, I get asked that on occasion. I mean, look, you can only live your life in the way with the choices you make, with the information you have at the time you make them, right? I never anticipated that there could be a private corporate prosecution against anyone, much less me in the United States of America. You know, you could say, well, had you known that it could actually play out this way, that there could be this level of abuse of power in the judiciary, would you have done it? I don't know. Um, I didn't have that information. I believe in America. I mean, recognizing we have significant problems in this country, but I believe in the rule of law. Um, I'm a lawyer, you know, I was trained to believe you could use the law to help people, which is what I've tried to do my entire life. Um, obviously going to prison and having your money taken. I mean, they've taken all my savings, by the way, people don't even know that part of it to pay their own legal fees. Judge Kaplan ordered that um, to exist at my point in life. I'm 60 years old and have virtually no assets. Um, with a family, by the way. Uh, wow, you know, and it's like, would I do it differently? Actually, I think I would still do the same thing because 
that's how I am. And I take my obligations, you know, when I take something on very seriously, and I still do, and I still am honored to be asked by the people of Ecuador to help them. Um, it's a privilege. And even though I have virtually no assets, I, I have a lot of wealth in the sense that I've lived a very rich life. And I feel very fortunate to have had the experiences I've had, very fortunate to be very tight with shamans in the rainforest, you know, and, and leaders from these communities um, who, who I have learned from and been humbled by. And by the way, they've learned from me, you know, this is a really interesting dynamic. Um, I, I would just do the same thing in Danbury Prison. You know, pe people learn from each other. And I've just had an extraordinary life, and I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. And I really go back to the fact that even though I've had to, I've had a lot of pain lately, we have won. We have won. And by the way, you want to take on a big, powerful oil company and actually win, and you actually expect them to just cut that check and not fight back, you're naive. Mm. Um, I knew they would do this. I didn't think they could do precisely what they did with the judges and the corporate prosecution, which blows my mind. Yeah. Um, but believe me, I knew they would fight back hard, and they have. And But ultimately, we've won, they've lost, and I think the the dynamics are moving our way in a very significant way. I think they overreach with my prison sentence. And we're getting, you know, the support we have around the world is a magnitude, uh, oh, sorry, I'm losing my head. It's multiple, multiple, multiples of what it was before I went to prison. I mean, the Nobel laureates and the, you know, Thousands and thousands of people have participated, joined our campaign, signed up, helped, you know, put resources in so we can pay lawyers and fight this monster. Um, so we're as strong as we've ever been, and we're, we're going to continue to grow this, both to make sure the people of Ecuador get what they have earned, rightfully earned, by going to court, but also to take on broader climate-oriented human rights issues using the expertise that our team has developed working on this unique case. So we're excited about the future and we're going to keep rolling and, and building this out and getting stronger, I hope. Listen, if yeah. you can face this down, <laughs> there's nothing yeah. you can't tackle. And to, I'm sorry to cut you off, but to, to, to bolster your point real fast, Glenn Greenwald once told me that despite everything that Edward Snowden went through, he sleeps better than any of us. Because <laughs> if you really follow your conscience and follow what you know is morally correct and ethically correct and you live your life to the fullest with that in mind then it's the old saying he who has a why to live for can bear any how and i put you in that boat well that's kind man that's that's i never heard it explained quite like that that's beautiful so thank you i, I agree with that um guys if you can freedonziger.com um donate to steven's legal defense fund um to help him continue both with his battles that are ahead of him but also um with the incredibly important work that he's going to be doing out there in the world at the very latest <laughs> after april <laughs> that is the worst case scenario i certainly hope um listen i i thank you for your time but more importantly thank you for your vulnerability today um and i think for everybody who's listening i know for me it's been incredibly profound and eye-opening to hear you talk about your experience and that takes courage in and of itself to really share deeply the way you did. So thank you, Stephen. It's nice to see you. Thank you. And I, I want to thank both of y'all and for all you've done to 
bring this to the attention of people, including uh, the live stream crystal that you guys did. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to flat out say it. I think the reason I got out of prison was because of that live stream. Yeah, I'm taking it. I'm taking it. I'll take it. <laughs> We're taking credit. <laughs> no, it was my five minute video within the live stream. There you that go. That's right. Kyle yes. was there too. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Really updated. appreciate it, man. We'll You're a treasure. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again, guys. See you soon. All right, that was Steven Donziger. Now, uh, you know, the thing I was getting there, at there at the end is um, something I think is uh, true across the board for people, that if you have a, a real meaning and a real purpose, then all the other things which could take somebody down, you know, mentally, uh, emotionally, so on and so forth, the stuff is more bearable when you know that there's a real, like, cause for it and a real root and, and there's something that's guiding you in the process yeah and so that's why i think you know i actually i think it's true i think edward snowden probably sleeps better than any of us even though he's not in the country he wants to be in even though he knows he basically sacrificed his life to do what he did you know stephen donziger's in a similar position he experienced extreme pain but when you can sort of look yourself in the mirror and know that every step of the way you did the thing that you know is moral and ethical it's a lot e it's it you know life feels a lot better when that's the case, you'd almost rather deal with all the fallout and all the terrible stuff, but make the right decision than make the wrong decision and have to look at yourself in the mirror every day. I think probably one of the harder parts is like it's not just what Steven's been through through all of this, but it's taken a tremendous toll on his family, you know, yeah. his wife, his son, who's, you know, in high school and dad's had to. Dad hasn't been able to go to, I don't know if he plays sports, but right. soccer mm -hmm. games or whatever it is, right. his landmark milestone events, if they were happening outside of the house, Stephen couldn't be there for him. And this was clearly, um, understandably, an extraordinarily searing experience for him. Um, I still feel emotional. I'm still getting emotional thinking about just how vulnerable he was and what he's been through. It's always profound to speak with someone when they're right in the middle of like, like he hasn't processed it yet. He hasn't packaged it yet. He hasn't figured out what all these stories and experiences, what they mean and why they landed and, and how they impacted him and how they fit into his worldview. So it was definitely, you know, it was definitely profound to just hear him grappling in real time with what he has seen and lived and experienced. Yeah, and the good news is that, you know, even though it's totally unjust, he's still under house arrest and should have never been in prison in the first place and all that stuff. Uh, at least now there is a light at the end of the tunnel, even under a worst case scenario. It's April 25th. Well, another thing you have to think about and that I know he thinks about is like his punishment, wildly unjust. And he has the benefit of getting those 30 letters a day in prison mm. and having people aware of his story yep. and fighting for him and you know, the privilege of being a, you know, a white Harvard educated lawyer and people just like looking at him being like, you're out of place here. Um, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are in prison, even either who didn't do the crime at all, or who certainly don't deserve the punishment who are just, you know, sort of lost in a black hole that aren't going to get that attention and that, um, sunshine and that shined on them through you know the media or through the letters or through amnesty international or whatever and so i think it's really important to um 
that Stephen share what that experience is like because he is in a position where he has that platform to be able to shine a light on just how miserable and unjust our criminal justice system actually is. Well, and to your point, that's why the Innocence Project is so important, and they do really, really phenomenal work. They're not trying, uh, you know, to get people, I think, off death row. I don't know if they're exclusively trying to get people off death row or if there's other crimes where they try to, you know, in, that aren't uh, capital punishment crimes where they try yeah. to exonerate them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I saw, uh, it was probably, I don't know, two, three months ago, something like that, that uh, Rogan had on two people from the Innocence Project and the stories they told. Woo! I mean, I, I was tearing up at those. I mean, and Rogan was crying on the podcast, too, because, you know, you hear these stories and you think, how many people are in there like that? How many people are in there like that? And, it's you know, it becomes easy for people to just sort of, not care or wall it off and, and put it out of their mind because there are people in prison who, whatever, multiple time rapists or serial killers. Yeah. And, and that's why I asked him the question about like, how many of these people that you talked to were, did you get the sense were like pathological? Like mm -hmm. there is a, a profile of a criminal where something's just off, whatever it may be, born the wrong way, got hit in the head as a kid and the wiring's off and you know, you just have a bloodlust or whatever, that happens. So that's why I asked him because I wanted to get the context from somebody who was inside. Now, granted, he said he was in a low-security prison. I'm sure in a maximum-security prison it would be a slightly different story, but right. it does give you a good uh, you know, example of there are even people who commit whatever low-level offenses where you see nothing but the raw humanity when you're on that side of it, and you see, like, hey, maybe this wasn't fair. Maybe this, you know, this is way too draconian and way too harsh. The thing that stuck with me, many things stuck with me, but one of them was uh, the small business people who whatever, didn't pay taxes for three years or four years and they're in prison. And you compared that type of crime to the types of crimes that on a Tuesday before brunch, you got the the major companies in the country committing systemically. Yeah. And they have a, a team of attorneys and a team of experts that find the loopholes and they can wiggle out of any accountability whatsoever. And you look at this and you go, Jesus Christ, this is off. It reminds me of the uh, Martin Luther King quote. You have uh, rugged individualism and capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich. Yeah. And that's I the mean, truth. You know, how many of the of the dudes who nearly destroyed the entire world economy and defrauded so many homeowners. Promoted. <laughs> None yeah. of them are in Danbury Federal Penitentiary. They got bailed out, got bonuses <laughs> and got promoted. Ever. Yeah. Richer and then, than ever. And then they were, you know, we were told, well, we can't fire these people because we need to retain the talent oh. of these companies. Oh, retain the talent of the people who just bankrupted your company? Yeah. Those people, the ones who have no talent, retain that talent? Yeah, the ones who are cr either criminals or wildly incompetent. Right. Or in yeah. some instances, both. Both, right. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, Alice Marie Johnson, who's the um, woman who had, she was pardoned by Trump. Uh, One I of got the best things he did. One of the best things yeah. he did, mm -hmm. yeah. I got to interview her, and that stuck with me as one of the most intense and profound interviews I'd had the fortune to get to do. And she's just one of these people who, God, I mean, what she was put through for, again, the lowest, most tangential drug charge, where it wasn't even her. It was like she took a phone call or something ridiculous. I can't even remember the details. And there she is thinking she's in prison for life with, you know, having to watch her kids grow and have grandbabies and whatever from the inside and yet this was one of the most beautiful people you, right. you yeah. could possibly meet i mean it just it just radiated off of her this right. like peace and goodness and i'm sure you've all probably been around yeah. mm -hmm. a time or two in your life someone who has that thing and and she had that thing and it was incredible
It was I incredible. mean, I had to bite my tongue because I didn't want to go on a, on a side tangent and side conversation. But when he brought up the thing about, well, there's this one wing that's all the drug people. I, I want to be like, yeah, free them all. That's one area where I'm like, you know, I'm as hardline as it gets on that stuff. The people who use the drugs, the people who sold the drugs, <laughs> free, free, go, go, go. I mean, this is literally no different in my mind than somebody selling Jim Bean at the local local liquor store. Yeah, what if they're zero difference? You're talking about if it's nonviolent, though. Uh, of course, if well, yeah, violent, that's why I'm saying story. just drugs. If it's if there's violence involved, then the violent part is the crime. The, right. The drug part, free, free, free. Yeah. Funny enough, there's actually we don't need to get into a side conversation about this, but the one part where I was like. Is when he was talking about those the sex offenders. Yeah, the sex offenders. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, it was just a text message. Well, if it's a text message and you're trying to do anal with a 12 year old, sort of fuck you. Like, you should be locked up. I know. I was. I was also thinking about that one too. Um, because I guess the other thing is that even if this particular instance is basically an entrapment scheme, they've shown or, that like, they will do it with real people. They, is this? Right. It's very unlikely that was the first instance That's it's just exactly the one right. that they happen to get caught in right. so yeah i, I now, need more information on that one correct now if somebody has those urges but they never act on them then that person can be free there are plenty of people who have those urges and you know they're like hey i know it's wrong i know i don't want to be like this i was something's off in my brain whatever then and they don't act on it well that's then you're free and that's totally fine but if you act on those urges Look, what are you going to do? It's it's predatory by its very nature. There's no consenting with somebody who isn't capable of consent yes. for good reason. 100%. So anyway, all right, yeah. well, ending on a weird note. but Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I guess the other part, the the last part, so that we don't end up on, end on uh, the pedos, is <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really interesting how Stephen talked about that experience of, like, the process this sort of like formalized process of dehumanization. Right, yeah. And watching his clothes be, you know, he's ta they're taken off, he's strip searched, um, which I can't imagine, you know, how like humiliating and horrible that is and dehumanizing in and of itself. And then he sees the crumpled clothes there in the box and felt like the way he described it, he's like, it felt like a part of me died. I have no doubt that you come out of an experience like that a different person like some part of you is definitely changed different dead reborn yeah. <laughs> whatever it is and um and he's clearly you know working through what that all looks like um right now yeah i mean the way society looks at it is like oh if you commit a crime then you lose your rights and so the pro in the process of losing those rights looks it is dehumanization but it also you know looks a hell of a lot like like the pay 25 cents a week to be a nurse or whatever it was 25 oh. cents a day whatever it was yeah. that is literally like modern day indentured servitude yeah. or slavery 100%. and they say i mean in the constitution it says like we abolish slavery and basically unless you're imprisoned in which case like yeah we could do whatever do we whatever want we yeah want. which is sort of crazy horrible um one thing kanye west was right about when you remember when he was like he went on a thing about that i don't like, we I still don't got slavery that. and it was like because we have prison slavery anyway we don't, <laughs> we're done <laughs> all right guys we love you um uh if you like the content and listen today's podcast was something else I don't, I don't know how anybody could disagree with that i mean that was really touching and deep and interesting and, and it was multifaceted and everything but if you like this content and you support independent media uh, go to sub Substack and sign up for $5 a month and you get the videos of the podcast a day early and you get the wonderful newsletters. We deeply appreciate and support every single person who um, who supports the show by paying the $5. It means yeah. the world to us. And remember, we don't take a single penny from any other outlet for this show. There's no ads. 
there, there's no pre-roll ads, so there's no medium either. There's no direct working with companies and reading ads. We want it to be totally corporate-free in every respect. The only way we fund this show is through your small small dollar donations and your support. So uh, we really appreciate everybody who does. And um, for everybody else, if you want to go to Substack and just uh, subscribe for free, you can do that as well. The benefit of that is you'll get the podcast dropped in your email box as soon as it comes out. If not, you could just go to whatever podcast and platform you, get you want. Piper's wonderful newsletters and True. information about the guests that are coming up and that sort of stuff. True. Um, so just subscribe on Substack, guys. Yeah. And uh, by the way, we have some uh, really exciting guests we're planning in the new year. And we're coming very close to our one-year anniversary of doing this thing. Oh, really? We started it. Didn't we start it right on uh, January 1 of last year? I don't remember what I ate for breakfast. Okay. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll fact check that one because neither of our brains work really effectively in that regard. But Still behind Barry White, sure by the way. Pretty sure we are very close to a one-year anniversary. So thanks for making it a success, guys. We love you, and we'll see you next week. Bye.